0: Hey, everybody. Welcome to Talking Scripture, a podcast where we illustrate relevance and application of the scriptures in Come, Follow Me. We also dive into the history and cultures of the text. Thanks for taking the time to share and subscribe to this podcast. For show notes, head over to our website, Talkingscripture.org.
1: Welcome to Talking Scripture. I'm Mike. And I'm Bryce. And today we are going to be in Matthew chapter 5 and Luke 6. This is the front part of the Sermon on the Mount. Now, the way Come Follow Me has constructed this year's program, we're teaching just Matthew 5 and Luke 6, so next week we'll finish the Sermon on the Mount. We
0: will be in Matthew 6 and 7. And I just want to say that this Sermon on the Mount is a key that unlocks so many critical doctrines, understandings, just ways to see the gospel. It is absolutely profound. You could spend a lifetime studying the Sermon on the Mount. And yet it is simple that even children, if you teach primary, you can easily teach the Sermon on the Mount in a way that they will absolutely digest. I love this statement from Frederick Farrar, the Sermon on the Mount is a great sea whose smiling surface breaks into refreshing ripples at the feet of our little ones but into whose unfathomable depths the wisest may gaze with the shudder of amazement and the thrill of love. This sermon is the Savior's attempt to push them into higher living. I think it stands alone, but the fact that Jesus goes to America and repeats the three chapters that Matthew gives us is a stamp of approval that I think begs us to spend our lives studying the Sermon on the Mount. It is a key that unlocks so many doctrines. Nothing in my life has helped me understand the temple and the purposes of the temple and exactly what I'm doing in the temple than the Sermon on the Mount. Bryce, I like this quote by John Welch. He says, No
1: text in the Bible is more important or has had more influence on the history and character of Christianity than the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5-7. through It would be hard to overstate the value of the Sermon on the Mount in shaping Christian ethics— and in conveying to the world the teachings of Jesus and of early Christianity. It is known as the Great Sermon, an unparalleled address, and thousands of books and articles have analyzed it extensively and minutely. It stands unsurpassed as the Sermon of the Master par excellence. Embedded in the Book of Mormon, in the account of the first day of Jesus' ministry among the Nephites at the Temple in Bountiful in Third Nephi 11-18, are three chapters, chapters 12-14 through 14 in 3rd Nephi, that are substantially the same as the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5-7. through 7. They stand in the Book of Mormon as a temple text. And so I really do think that this is worth consideration, that the Sermon on the Mount can be read in many ways. It can be read at a literal level. It can be read as an allegory. It can be read with the approach of, okay, how do I apply it in my life? And then finally, it can be read okay, what does this have to do with my ascent unto God? How is this a temple text? I think all four readings are alive and well in this sermon of sermons. This is, like you say, Bryce, worthy of our life of study and analyzing and thinking, okay, how can I incorporate these teachings in my life to be a better follower of Jesus?
0: So let me give you my overall structure and the reason I think the Sermon on the Mount holds such a significant place in our doctrine, in our theology. I believe our journey through mortality, as portrayed in the temple, is a journey from telestial to terrestrial, and then from terrestrial to celestial. We do some things to prepare to enter the terrestrial world, and then we do some things to prepare to enter the celestial world. So we send missionaries out into the world, and our chapels have signs on the side that say, visitors welcome, because everyone on this planet needs to make that first change, that transition from telestial to terrestrial. We are born into a world, and the scriptures in the Book of Mormon teach that this world is fallen, and that our natures are fallen, and that we have a naturally fallen disposition In other words, it seems to be suggesting we come in at the telestial stage, and the first change that the Lord invites us to make is to change from telestial to terrestrial. Now, that change involves overcoming the natural man, and as I look at what I call chapel ordinances, ordinances that are performed in the chapel, many of them have to do with the change from telestial to terrestrial. And we perform those ordinances like baptism, when we enter the water and bury the natural man, or like sacrament, where we break the natural man like we break the bread. And even anciently, as you went from the outer courtyard of the temple, which symbolized the celestial world, and came into the holy place, which represents the terrestrial world, you passed the altar of sacrifice and the laver. So there's washings, and there's offerings of animals as part of what I call chapel ordinances, where in our modern-day church, those are the things we do in the chapel. But then the Lord asks us to make another change. Becoming terrestrial is only half of the battle. I don't believe you want to go to the terrestrial kingdom. I believe the fact that you're listening to this podcast and hungering for truth suggests that you desire the higher kingdom where God dwells in the celestial glory, which means good and terrestrial are not good enough. Overcoming the terrestrial and coming into the chapel and performing chapel ordinances is not enough you are now invited to make another change, and that is to go from terrestrial to celestial. And I would suggest the ordinances that lead us in that direction are primarily found in the temple. Now, the very best place to understand the invitation to rise above terrestrial and become celestial is, in fact, the Sermon on the Mount. No matter what class I teach, anytime we're talking about that transition, we always turn to the Sermon on the Mount. It is a gem in helping us understand what is higher and holier. And if you really want to see the purpose of temple ordinances, which are the invitation to become more celestial, you need to start in the Sermon on the Mount. So allow me to begin, before we do, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We need to turn to the Nephite version of this, 3rd Nephite chapter 12, where the Savior gives this same sermon in the Americas, but he includes a verse that you're not going to find in Matthew's edition. And I think that verse really does set the tone for what the purposes of this sermon are. Starting in verse 1 of Third Nephi 12, he stretched forth his hand and said unto the multitude and cried unto them, Blessed are ye if ye shall give heed unto the words of these twelve whom I have chosen from among you to minister unto you and to be your servant. Now notice what he does in verse 2. I think he turns to the twelve and says, More blessed are they who shall believe on your words because that ye shall testify that ye have seen me. And that ye know that I am. Yea, blessed are they who shall believe on your words and come down into the depths of humility and be baptized. For they shall be visited with fire and with the Holy Ghost and shall receive the remission of your sins. I would suggest, I would submit to you, that the Sermon on the Mount is for baptized members who have already made the commitment to come out of the world into the terrestrial. And now Jesus is saying, here's how you take the next step. So we're going to find a lot of, here's how you got here. Here's what you did to get to this stage. And now here's what you need to do to take the next step. I think he is speaking to covenant members who all have to overcome a little bit of the telestial world. I don't think any of us fully overcome the telestial in this life. We struggle with that. I know I do. But I think in general, we've made covenants to be terrestrial, to live a a higher standard than the world lives. And so now Jesus is saying, here's what you did to get here, and now here's what you need to do to take the next step. So with that in mind, let's look at the Beatitudes, because these are attitudes of celestial people. Yeah.
1: So when we start, we start with these statements that are commonly called the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And then they go on. There are several blessed statements, and... The word that's used in the Greek is makarioi, it means in the state of the gods. I really like that reading. As a Latter-day Saint, understanding what we believe about what Jesus intends to do to us, he intends to make us as he is, and we read this in the Book of Mormon, but it's other places as well, of the blessed state of the gods. Blessed are you, or you come to the makarioi, you come to be in this state if you have these characteristics. And what are they? Their characteristics of a disciple of Christ. What is a disciple of Christ like? Well, they're meek. They hunger and thirst after righteousness. They have mercy in their heart. They're pure in heart. They're peacemakers. As they do these things, as followers of Christ exemplify these characteristics, they become like the celestial beings. Everything Bryce is talking about, taking us to the celestial kingdom, is a blessed state of those individuals that have had their very natures changed. There's a really interesting commentary about this from a couple of scholars, Legrand Baker and Stephen Ricks. So they say, One of the most interesting examples of Joseph Smith's statement, we believe the Bible to be the Word of God as far as it is translated correctly, is found in the Anchor Bible, where we read a couple of biblical scholars, W.F. Albright, a distinguished Old Testament scholar, and C.S. Mann, an equally distinguished New Testament scholar. This is the way that they translate it. Fortunate are the humble in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Fortunate are those who mourn, for they shall be consoled. Fortunate are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And then they go on. But then Baker and Ricks make this point. They say, in a footnote, Albright and Mann explain why they chose the word fortunate. They write, the word in Greek was used in classical times to mean of the state of the gods in contrast of men meaning that makarioi is about the blessed state of the gods. They continue, The usual English, quote, blessed, has more and more come to have liturgical or ecclesiastical overtones. And so we, Albright and man, have chosen fortunate as being the best translation available to us. And then Baker and Ricks continue, and they, commenting on this, say... The thing that is so interesting about the clarification in their footnote is that these world-class scholars knew what the Greek word makarioi means. It means in the state of the gods, but they did not believe Jesus could have meant that. So they came up with a watered-down word, fortunate, because that made more sense to them. Then, consistent with their training as scholars, they put the real meaning of the word in the footnote. So I really like that word. I love the word blessed. And as kind of a nerdy side note, the Hebrew equivalent is ashray, which I keep coming back to. That's kind of this idea of a tree in Proverbs 3 that they're blessed. And by the way, we're in this sermon, we are progressing towards the Holy of Holies. We're coming to a tree. So at the conclusion of this sermon, Jesus will talk about how do I know if a tree's good? Look at its fruit but that's for next week. But it really starts out beautifully if we understand Jesus is inviting us to enter into the state of the gods, the blessed state of the gods. So I see this in the ritual context. I see the Lord speaking in code. He's talking about so many things. If you've ever wondered, like, why is this constructed this way? And why are we proceeding in this fashion? My belief is that this is the endowment. And one of the things we read here in this sermon, and it's really going to cover a couple weeks, but we read in this sermon the covenants associated with the temple. Now, in the church handbook of instructions, we read the covenants of the endowment. This is what it literally says in the church handbook. In the endowment, members are invited to make sacred covenants as follows. Number one, live the law of obedience and strive to keep Heavenly Father's commandments. Number two, obey the law of sacrifice, which means sacrificing to support the Lord's work and repenting with a broken heart and contrite spirit. Number three, obey the law of the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is the higher law that he taught while he was on the earth. Number four, keep the law of chastity number 5 keep the law of consecration which means that members dedicate their time talents and everything with which the lord has blessed them to building up Jesus Christ church on the earth now my belief is that the five covenants are right here in the sermon on the mount this is the endowment we're trying to be obedient to the commands god has given that's in Matthew 5:18 and 19 and we're being the salt of the earth a concept of sacrifice, and that's Matthew 5.13. We're living the law of the gospel in Matthew 5, verse 38 through 48. We're being kind to those around us. We're settling our differences in verses 23 through 25. If there's anything that causes unkind feelings between me and my brother, before I go to the altar, verse 23, settle it with him. We're living the law of chastity, Matthew 5, verse 27. And we have this image of light. Jesus is encouraging his followers to be the light of the world, to be a city set on a hill. Verse 14. So right at the beginning, after the blessed statements, we read this concept of sacrifice. Now we'll get into obedience here when we get to verses 17 and 18. But right here, we have this image of an altar and salt. He says in verse 12, Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. Ye are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost its savor, wherewith shall it be salted? It is thenceforth good for nothing but to be cast out and to be trodden under foot of men. Now that idea of being trodden under the foot of men could be a cursing associated with violating Melchizedek priesthood covenants. We read some of that at the end of Alma 30. It's in other places as well. Go to the show notes. But that being said, verse 13 invites us to a concept of sacrifice, of an altar and salt. And then we read this image of light. Look in verse 14. Ye are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. Now, I think that this sermon was given on the north side of the Sea of Galilee. That's the common place where in tradition they think that Jesus gave this sermon. And as he was teaching it, I believe that the backdrop was the city of Tiberias. The city of Tiberias is on the western side of the Sea of Galilee or the Lake of Galilee. And the city of Tiberias would have been lit up at night if he was giving this sermon towards dusk. But whenever he was giving it, I think that he's referring to Tiberius. It's literally the backdrop to his sermon. Jesus is encouraging his followers to be the light of the world, to be a city set on a hill. And with that in mind, then he says in verse 17, Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am come not to destroy, but to fulfill. For verily I say unto you, Till heaven and earth pass, not one jot or tittle, shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. I kind of liken that unto the law of obedience. He's inviting us to be obedient people that come unto him. Jesus is inviting us to keep the commandments. He's also inviting us to rethink how the commandments work. So I think in verse 17 and 18, he's introducing this idea that he's going to give ideas that may seem as if he's changing the prophets. But what he really is saying is, I'm here to fulfill what they were teaching. Because of that, verse 19, we are not to teach that we break the commandments, that the commandments are important. And so Jesus is now going to talk about some specifics of the law. And the first thing he's going to talk about is this commandment about killing, and that's in verse 21.
0: Now that's where we pick up this, here's what you did to get here, and here's the step you need to make to go further. So he says in verse 21, ye have heard that it was said by them of old time, thou shalt not kill, and whoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment. So I would suggest that anything associated with killing and physical violence and causing harm and hurting people is a celestial act. And so by not hurting people, I've made that transition, and I've become a terrestrial person. Now Jesus says, okay, the next step is to turn inward. Now you need to control your heart and your head. We live celestial laws inside, in our thoughts, our attitudes, our desires. That's why we call them B-attitudes. So now he says, here's the new change. But I say unto you, verse 22, that whosoever is angry with his brother shall be in danger of the judgment. And whosoever shall say to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. And whosoever shall say, thou fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. So, celestial people may hit and kick and hurt and bite. Terrestrial people don't hit. Now celestial people don't think those things. They don't let anger control them. They don't say demeaning things and tear people down. They lift instead. And it's that higher law, I see your value, I know whose child you are, and I'm going to treat you with the respect that you deserve. I won't ever call you raka or stupid or dummy. Celestial people don't tear others down. They lift and they build and they help and they yearn. So you need to get rid of the part of you that is thinking negative thoughts about other people. You need to get rid of anger in your heart. Now, I would say anger in my hands is telestial, where I'm hitting and harming and hurting. Anger in my heart that might come out my mouth or maybe just stay in my thoughts is going to keep me out of celestial. He kind of continues that in the next verse, that if your brother hath ought against thee, fix that. Let's be concerned about what my brother is doing and feeling, and let me lift and build. And if I've done something to harm you, let me fix that. Do you see that celestial attitude of lifting people?
1: In a lot of ways, he's really focusing on what's in your heart and what's in your head. And I really do think he's also talking to a group of people that are disenfranchised, meaning they're subjugated to Rome. We're going to get to this in a minute. But I think because they're in this position of lacking power, they probably do feel justified in being angry from time to time. I mean, when you're talking
0: about what's in your heart, we're at a whole new level here. Yeah. Now the next one, thou shalt not commit adultery. The step that went from telestial to terrestrial, he says in verse 27, ye have heard that it was said of them of old time, thou shalt not commit adultery. The committing and the violation of chastity and laws of chastity are very telestial. And those people who are committed to overcoming violations of the law of chastity, who say, I won't do them. And those who say, I won't do them anymore, are rising up out of that celestial and into that terrestrial. I won't commit the act of adultery. Now watch what Jesus does to push us to the next level. I think he's saying, I'm grateful that you don't do it, but you think about it. You yearn to do it. In other words, it's in your heart. It's in your head. So the invitation is, verse 28, I say unto you that whosoever looketh upon a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. Granted, you're not doing it. You're not guilty of the violation, but celestial people don't think those things. They don't allow those inappropriate thoughts in their head and in their heart. Now, the next one has to do with divorce, and I want to handle this very delicately because I do not believe in any way he's saying that divorced people don't go to the celestial kingdom. I do not believe that's the statement from the Savior. So allow me to paraphrase how I understand this next invitation. So he says, whosoever shall put away for his wife, let him give her a writing of divorce. I would say it this way, that celestial people who are married to someone— but want someone else, cheat. They just violate the law of chastity. If I'm married to this woman and I want that woman, a celestial person would just cheat. Now, I think it's saying that the terrestrial attitude is to not violate the law of chastity, which has to do with covenants of marriage. So the terrestrial attitude would be, well, divorce her— and then marry her so that that act is done within the bonds of matrimony. It's done within the law. I think that's more of a terrestrial attitude. Now, I think what he's trying to say, though, is that if I'm a celestial person, I don't look. My eyes don't wander. I stay committed. I am true to the covenants I've made, and no one else— enters my heart and my head. I think that's the celestial attitude. I don't think this is a commentary on divorce. I think this is a commentary on what's in my heart and what's in my head. That's how I read these these words on divorce.
1: Yeah, there certainly were a couple different schools in rabbinic teachings in Jesus' day about marriage and divorce, and there was a school of thought in his day where a a certain rabbi taught, you could divorce your wife if she burned your soup. And Jesus is definitely pushing against that. It seems that he's pushing the limit to only under the most serious circumstances, verse 32, would this even be a thought. Now, Elder Faust talks about divorce, and in this quote he says, In my opinion, any promise between a man and a woman incident to a marriage ceremony rises to the dignity of a covenant. And then he talks a little bit about covenants. But then he asks the question, okay, what about divorce? And he says, What then might be a just cause for breaking the covenant of marriage? Over a lifetime of dealing with human problems, I have struggled to understand what might be considered just cause for breaking of covenants. I confess I do not claim the wisdom or authority to definitively state what is just cause. Only the parties to the marriage can determine this. They must bear the responsibility for the train of consequences which inevitably follow if these covenants are not honored. In my opinion, just cause should be nothing less serious than a prolonged and apparently irredeemable relationship which is destructive of a person's dignity as a human being. Now, that's a pretty powerful statement, in my opinion, by Elder Faust. Essentially, he's saying, you have to make that decision. You, the parties in the marriage, have to make it. But he holds it to a high standard. He says, hey, if it's anything less than your dignity at stake, then work it out. Now, I'm glad I don't have to be a marriage counselor. That would be a very difficult job. And divorce is a serious business. The way I read these verses, verse 31 and verse 32 of Matthew 5, is Jesus is pushing the limit to a very serious level. Don't divorce your wife because she burns your soup. And like I said, that was a tradition that some people
0: believed in. Jesus is taking them to that higher level. Maybe this is a good time to pause and say, look, all of us are invited to become celestial, but I don't think the expectation is that we're all celestial right now. I certainly know I'm not. There are many things I'm still working on, and so I don't think anyone needs to use the Sermon on the Mount as a tool of judgment and condemnation and point the finger and bang people over the head to say, boy, if you got divorced, then you're clearly not a celestial person. That is not the intent of this sermon in any way. It is an invitation. To change the way we think and feel to be more celestial. You know, Bryce, I don't get anything out of this as a as a weapon. I don't think Jesus
1: is trying to weaponize anything. I, I agree with you. I think he's really gently inviting us to reconsider kind of our heart and our in our mind. Yep.
0: Now the next one has to do with keeping your word, forswearing, so to speak. It's what would get a celestial person to keep a promise? And that's a very difficult thing because the very nature of being celestial says you really don't keep your promises. You lie, you cheat, you double cross. You don't keep a promise. So how would you get a terrestrial person to keep a promise? Well, in our society, we kind of have a terrestrial way of keeping your promise by signing a contract. And I kind of see that's what he's talking about in forswearing by the heavens. I think there's an element here of, well, if you swear an oath, or in our day, if you sign a contract, you're more likely to keep it. I think terrestrial people will honor a contract where they've signed the document. So then he pushes us to the next level. Okay, When would a celestial person honor a promise or a covenant or an oath that they've made? And the answer is in verse 37. But let your communication be yay, yay, nay, nay. In other words, if a celestial person says, I'll do it, that's all it takes because he'll do it or she'll do it. If a celestial person gives their word, then they will do it. Now, again, this isn't a weapon to bang people over the head or to condemn others. It's an invitation to honor a covenant and a commitment that I've made. It is a matter of honor, and if I said I would pay that money back, then I will pay that money back, and I don't need a contract or a threat of going to jail or a collection agency to get me to pay the money back. I said I would pay it back, and I'm going to. That's the invitation. I love this quotation from Carl G. Mazur, a brilliant man and an honorable man who said this, my young friends, I have been asked what I mean by word of honor. I will tell you, place me behind prison walls, walls of stone ever so high, ever so thick, reaching ever so far into the ground, and there is a possibility that in some way or another I may be able to escape. But stand me on the floor and draw a chalk line around me, and have me give my word of honor never to cross it. Can I get out of that circle? No, never. I die first. That's the celestial attitude. I gave my word and I'm going to keep it. That's good. In verse 38, Jesus
1: says, You have heard that it has been said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say unto you that you resist not evil, but whosoever shall smite thee on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Okay, a couple thoughts on eye for an eye. I think eye for an eye gets a really bad rap. A lot of people look at it as if, okay, if my eye's out, I'm taking your eye out. That's not really the intent in the law of Moses. The law of Moses at least as, as I read this section of the law, has to do with restitution. It has to do with making things whole. And a lot of Western law is based on this. So for example, if I'm hit in a car accident by somebody who caused the accident, then the insurance companies get together and the idea is that the person who's hurt is made whole. Maybe they fix my car or whatever. They need to fix it and make it right. That really is the judicial background to an eye for an eye. Now that being said... Jesus, as a response, doesn't even comment on the judicial aspect of putting things back together. His concern is totally different. He's talking not about getting back what you think you're owed, but changing the narrative. Now, there's a couple ways to read verse 39. I think it can be misread. I think sometimes Matthew 5, 39, about turning the other cheek, can be used to communicate to individuals that are in an abusive relationship, hey, just sit and take it, be a doormat. That's not how I read it. I read verse 39 as follows. Jesus says, "Whosoever shall smite thee on the right cheek, turn to him the other also." In the culture of Jesus's day, The right cheek is where someone would, who was a superior, would backhand somebody of a lesser station. They would use their right hand and backhand the right cheek of the person who was in a less powerful position. And that's how Rome kind of treated the Jews. They would backhand a Jew. And I think what Jesus is showing, at least in one respect, is to turn the other cheek, to resist that abusive situation without being abusive. I believe that he is teaching nonviolent resistance to evil. One biblical scholar wrote this, Readers generally imagine this as a blow with the right fist, but such a blow would fall on the left cheek. To hit the right cheek with a fist would require the left hand, but the left hand in Jesus' culture was reserved for only unclean tasks— At Qumran, even to gesture with the left hand meant exclusion from the meeting and penance for 10 days. The only conceivable blow was a right-handed backhand. The backhand was not a blow to injure, but to insult, humiliate, and degrade. It was not administered to an equal, but to someone who was inferior. Masters backhanded slaves parents backhanded children, and the Romans backhanded Jews. The whole point of the blow was to force someone who was out of line back into their normal social station. Notice Jesus's audience. He says, if anyone strikes you, these are people that are used to being degraded. He is saying to them, refuse to accept this kind of treatment anymore. If they backhand you, turn the other cheek. By turning the other cheek, the servant makes it impossible for the master to use the backhand again. The left cheek now is exposed, and it's offering a perfect target for a blow with the right fist. But remember, only equals have fistfights. And the last thing the master wishes to do is to establish this underling's equality. Logistically, the superior is deprived of any way to make his point. The servant has irrevocably conveyed the message, "'I am not a thing.'" I am a human being, and nothing you can do from now on can deprive me of that status. I refuse to be humiliated by you any longer. I am your equal. I am a child of God. Now, I believe that's what Jesus is teaching. I believe that he is teaching nonviolent resistance to evil. In other words, I want you guys to establish your station as a human being, But I want you to communicate this idea in a way that is not wrong, that is not evil. I want you to communicate this in a a way that is not violent. And I think this helps us to understand this is how we can communicate. We can disagree without becoming disagreeable. We
0: can stand up for what's right without becoming vengeful. You don't have to match their evil attempt. Exactly. You don't have to match evil for evil and I think this is the Book of Mormon's version, speaking of when do you fight and when do you go to war, the Lord made it clear to the Nephites. He told them that inasmuch as they are not guilty of the first offense, neither the second, you shall not suffer yourselves to be slain by the hands of your enemy. That phrase, not being guilty of the second offense, is the spirit of this celestial attitude. If you come at me and hit me in an evil way, I do not retaliate in an evil way. I am not guilty of the second offense. It doesn't necessarily mean I'm going to let you take advantage of me. That's not what turn the other cheek is trying to refer to. It means I won't return evil for evil. Now, the Lord takes that up a notch after the Jackson County persecutions. He gave a marvelous section, section 98. And he said, now I speak unto you concerning your families. If men will smite you and your families once, and ye bear it patiently, and revile not against them, neither seek revenge, ye shall be rewarded. But if you bear it not patiently, it shall be accounted unto you as being meted out as a just measure unto you. In other words, you're no different than the person who hit you. They sought evil against you, and you sought evil against them, and you're no better. But if you did not return evil for the evil done to you, that's a celestial attitude. That is control in your heart, and that will be rewarded. Now, Jesus goes on in section 98 to say, not only are you not guilty of the second offense, but you're not guilty of the third offense. So that's a very powerful one. Now that leads us to kind of the last one, love. Who is it that telestial people love? And I would say that the very definition of being telestial is to love only yourself. You love yourself. Now, The act of being terrestrial is to love those that love you. That's terrestrial love. That somehow if you don't like me, it's okay if I don't like you. And that's fair and decent and terrestrial. The Lord says, but it's not celestial. Celestial people love even when love isn't deserved or earned or given. To love someone who's being super nice to you is easy. It's terrestrial. To not love someone who is not being nice to you is terrestrial. To love someone who is being mean to you. To love someone who hates you. To love someone who wants to hurt you is celestial. To love your enemy. To bless them that curse you, to do good to them that hate you, to pray for those who despitefully use you and persecute you is celestial. Now notice what he says in the very next verse, verse 45, that you may be the children of your father, which is in heaven, because that's how God loves. Thank goodness that God loves me even when I'm not lovable that he gives his love even when I don't deserve it, or I haven't earned it. He loves me even when I give him reasons not to. Now that's celestial love.
1: Commenting on verse 43, Bryce, I just want to add this. I don't want to throw shade at the Old Testament. I don't think the Old Testament is saying to hate your enemy. But Jesus does say, you've heard that it has been said, thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thy enemy. Now, I don't read any of the 613 commands of Torah that says to hate your enemy, but there are some things going on in the Hebrew Bible which could lend itself to that. We got a couple when we read Deuteronomy 23, 3 through 6, talking about, okay, what do we do with the people in Canaan? We also have the command in Deuteronomy 7, 1 through 6. It's very difficult to read uh, with respect to the people that live in the land of Canaan. And then you've got a couple of those Psalms where it talks about God's invective nature towards the people that have harmed and destroyed the temple. One of those is Psalm 137, verses 7 through 9, and Psalm 139, 21 through 22. Those are difficult passages, and some of the Jews may have felt that having hatred towards others would be almost a patriotic duty, especially concerning Rome. One biblical scholar, Richard France, notes that perhaps this has been heard by followers of the Qumran community. There's this Qumran rule in their text that talks about loving the sons of light and hating the sons of darkness. And that may be what he's talking about. I don't know. I don't see that expressed explicitly in the Old Testament. I think what Jesus is doing is he's invoking Leviticus 19.18. Thou shalt not avenge nor bear any grudge against the children of thy people, but thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. I am the Lord. I think that is really what Jesus is invoking. And one of the ways that we can do this is that verse 41, where he says, Whosoever shall compel thee to go a mile, go with him twain. Now, a Roman soldier could make an individual carry their stuff for a mile. And Jesus is essentially saying to them, okay, if that happens, if you're compelled, go the second mile. You see, the first mile, you have to carry it, but the second mile, what you're communicating to this individual is, no, I choose to continue with you on this journey. I choose to continue to carry your stuff. Now, the whole time you're carrying their stuff the second mile, they're looking at you different. Jesus is inviting them to enter into a space where we can communicate to each other and get past our differences
0: and see the humanity in each other. I really like that. Yeah. The very last verse of chapter 5 is often misunderstood and mistaken and becomes a source of pain and anguish for many people. So let's see it in light of having a celestial attitude. It is not, I have to be perfect right now. The attitude is, I want to end up at that destination. I am willing to follow Christ. I love the idea that C.S. Lewis teaches in Mere Christianity with regards to be ye perfect. He said, some people seem to think this means, quote, unless you are perfect, I will not help you. And as we cannot be perfect, then if he meant that, our position is hopeless. But I do not think he meant that. I think he meant, quote, the only help I will give you is help to become perfect. You may want something less, but I will give you nothing less. And then C.S. Lewis gives this brilliant explanation. He said, when I was a child, I often had toothaches. I knew that I went to, if I went to my mother, she would give me something which would deaden the pain for that night and let me go to sleep. But I did not go to my mother, at least not until the pain became very bad. And the reason I did not go was this. I did not doubt that she would give me the aspirin, but I knew she would do something else. She would take me to the dentist the next morning. I could not get what I wanted out of her without getting something more, which I did not want. I wanted immediate relief from the pain, but I could not get it without having my teeth set permanently right. And I knew those dentists. I knew they started fiddling about with all sorts of other teeth, which had not yet begun to ache. Now, if I may put it that way, our Lord is like the dentist. Dozen of people go to him to be cured of one particular sin, which they are ashamed of, or which is obviously spoiling daily life. Well, he'll cure it all right, but he will not stop there. That may be all you asked, but if once you call him in, he will give you the full treatment. The celestial attitude is here, Lord, I give myself to Thee, and I know where You're taking me. And I know it's going to be a long journey, but I'm in. Take me there. Help me. Change me. I know I'm not there yet, but with Thy help, I can get there. That's the attitude.
1: Yeah. Now... I think sometimes Matthew 548 has been used as kind of a weapon, or sometimes it's caused us maybe undue guilt, as we've tried to follow Jesus and we feel like I'm never gonna get there. I know that the King James says, Be therefore perfect, even as your father which is in heaven is perfect, but I just want to discuss the Greek. And so it reads as follows Estesa un humes teleoi," In other words, in English, Therefore, you will be perfect, or you will be the finished ones, even as your Father in the heavens is perfect. You see, that word esthesa, it literally means. You all will be. It's a future indicative. It's going to happen. You will be the teleoi. If it was an imperative, if Jesus was saying, I'm commanding you to be perfect, the Greek would read esta, but it doesn't. It reads estesa. And so what we read here is Jesus is promising his followers, you will all be made the teleoi or the finished ones or the perfected ones, even as your father in the heavens is perfect. And I love that. I love the Greek reading because what it, what it does for me, it alleviates me having to work my way to heaven. I don't have to be, as, as I've studied Martin Luther, and he tried to monk his monkery till his monkery was sore. He fasted and prayed and fasted and prayed, and he always felt like he was never enough. And then he realized Jesus is enough. It's Jesus who takes me home. It reminds me of this verse in 2 Nephi where lehi is talking to jacob and he says wherefore thy soul shall be blessed thou shalt dwell safely with thy brother nephi and thy days shall be spent in the service of thy god wherefore i know that thou art redeemed because of the righteousness of thy redeemer that's lehi speaking in second nephi 2 verse 3 lehi knows that the power is in christ and so i look at jesus saying this in verse 48 saying you all listening to me We're trying to be obedient to the commands God has given. We're living the law of the gospel, and we're being kind to those around us. We're settling our differences. We're living the law of chastity, and we're being the salt of the earth. In other words, we're on the path, we're on the journey, and I believe that if we take the Lord's hand, we will be what he says we will be. And like Father Lehi, I say, I know that you will be redeemed because the righteousness of thy Redeemer.
0: Mike, I like that Jesus doesn't include himself until the third Nephi account after his resurrection. In the New Testament version, he says, be ye therefore perfect even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. In the Book of Mormon version, he says, wherefore I would that ye should be perfect even as I or your Father in heaven is perfect. Now it could be argued that Jesus was certainly perfect in the New Testament version, but he wasn't finished. He wasn't at the destination. He wasn't a resurrected celestial being. He still had death ahead of him and resurrection ahead of him. So he doesn't include himself in the New Testament version. What he's saying is, this is a journey to a destination, and I'm not at the destination yet. But in 3 Nephi, after his death, after his resurrection, when he is clearly a divine, resurrected, celestial being, now he includes himself, that we should be like he is. In other words, this is a long journey. This is not something you're expected to be today. Join the path. Allow Jesus to take you to the destination. And along the way, it's going to cost you and him a great deal of work and effort and sometimes pain, but he's going to get you there. Of that, we bear testimony. May you rely on his goodness, be willing to make the change, work on your attitudes, work on your thoughts, work on what's in your heart. Go to the temple and focus on how temple ordinances are pointing inward to things I do inside my soul. Be committed to make those changes. And if you are, Mike and I bear testimony that Jesus is capable of getting you to the destination.
1: And with that, we thank you for listening. We will see you next week when we finish the Sermon on the Mount. We will be in Matthew 6 and 7.